Christmas films have lots of similar themes that go through them. Um, one is usually snow. We see a lot of snow in Christmas films. Even though it doesn't often snow on Christmas Day, it usually does there in the films. But one of the things that the Christmas films do is this. There's magical powers to Christmas time. Have you noticed that? Christmas just seems to, in films, have this amazing ability to change people. So you've got somebody at the beginning of the film, they may be unhappy or miserable. Maybe their relationship is broken down. But by the end of the film, they're happy and joyful, and their relationship is fixed and it's all sorted. You think of a Christmas film, and I'm sure at some point there is those kind of changes in it. Whether it's A Christmas Carol with Scrooge, or A Wonderful Life, uh, whether it's The Grinch, uh, whether it's Elf, or Polar Express, or Home Alone, there's these things that happen in each one of these films where people are changed. And because they encounter Christmas, whatever that is, they encounter this power, and it changes them. Well, today, as we come to look at this passage in in Ephesians, in Galatians 4, we see a passage that sums up the Christmas message really neatly and and in quite a succinct way. And it sums it all up. And if we grasp it, we don't just um, have a a random kind of Christmas that can change us, but the real meaning of Christmas really should change each one of us. And when we see the news here, we can't be the same because of what it shows us about Jesus. It really is breathtaking news. So we're going to ask three questions to help us get to the heart of these verses in Galatians 4. We're only looking at verses 4 down to 7. There's enough there to keep us busy uh, for uh, the next half hour or so. But uh, we could go on more and more about the truths that this uh, brings up. So here are the three questions we're going to look at. We're going to ask, well, when did Jesus come? Then we'll ask, why did Jesus come? And we'll ask, finally, what difference does that make? Okay, so the first thing, when did Jesus come? Look at verse 4 and what it tells us. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time, when the right time had arrived, when it was all set, then Jesus came. I don't know if you're a fan of jigsaws. Uh, maybe at this time of year, maybe it's the time where you think, oh, I'm going to get a jigsaw out for Christmas and do it. Maybe you do it regularly throughout the year. Um, but imagine you're doing a jigsaw. And you spend ages trying to get this picture and putting it together, and you think the picture is complete. But then you realise, and you have to use your imagination, because I know usually you start with the edges, but you've done this picture and you realise there's no edges, which means the picture is a lot bigger than you originally thought. So you thought you've got these kind of pieces that you've pieced together, you've got this image, this picture, but then you realise there's thousands of pieces left, you're nowhere near finishing, and you only had a small part of it. You know, sometimes with Christmas, we can miss the greatness of it and the power of it because we just end up looking at one scene. We can end up looking just at the time where Jesus was born, when he was laid in the manger with Mary and Joseph and the shepherds come in, and then a few years later, maybe the, uh, the wise men coming along. And we just think of that kind of scene. And if we only think it's that, then we're missing out so much on a greater, bigger picture. So many people might, and maybe you're here this morning, can't see the relevance of a baby born 2,000 years ago to our life today. Well, that's because we've just got this one piece of the the picture, and we need to see the bigger uh, picture of it. And when we think of this verse and the start of it, when the fullness of time had come, it helps us to get and to see something of the bigger picture. Because here it is, the nativity scene is a great and important part of the picture, but it's only a small thing. Here, Paul is telling us when the fullness of time had come. 
Jesus didn't just turn up at a random time. He didn't just turn up out of the blue. But there's a context to it. There's a context to why Jesus came. And what's that context? Well, it's the whole of the Old Testament, isn't it? Before Jesus came. In the beginning, you read of God. In the beginning, God. Who is God? He's the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there they are, united together in this wonderful, intimate relationship of love. And the love between the Father, Son, and Spirit was so glorious, it couldn't stay within the Godhead. And it overflowed and God made and created the world. And he created the world and he created us to enjoy him and his love and to enjoy the gift of his creation. But instead of being part of that relationship of love with God, instead of loving God, we decided to choose our own way. We loved ourselves. And as a result of that, the relationship with God was broken. And so the whole reason for our existence, well, it was torn apart. We believed the lies of Satan that Satan said, God isn't good. God's hiding goodness from you. God wants to rob your joy. God wants to uh, squash you and, and he wants to uh, not take away any freedom. And because we believed the lies of Satan, because we went our own way, well, the world falls apart. The world, bit by bit, we turn against God, we turn against each other, even the, the ground, the earth itself, the fabric of this earth is falling apart. But God, in his kindness and his love, his love doesn't stop towards those he's made. And instead of saying, that's it, you've missed your chance, no, he says, I've got a plan. And my plan is to send someone to crush evil, to crush Satan, and to fix the world one day, to restore the relationship with me, that you were created to know. And so as we read through the Old Testament, that's what we're seeing. We're waiting for the promised one, the Messiah, the serpent crusher. The, that Jesus himself in the New Testament says, all of the Old Testament was always talking about me. So references to him are all over the place. Next year, we're going to start reading the Bible together again as a church. Um, and so every month, we're going to uh, read a, a book or maybe a couple of books in the Bible that are smaller and read it together and come together at the end of the month to share um, what we've been learning and how God's been speaking to us to it, through it. And so when we come to the Old Testament, one of the things we're going to be doing is saying, where's Jesus here? What does this tell me about Jesus? Because he has told us it's all about him. You know, there's a few ways that Jesus shows up in the Old Testament uh, and how we can look out for him. What sometimes Jesus is patterned in the Old Testament. So we see things that remind us of him. So let me read how one pastor sums it up. I'll only read some of this. Tim, Tim Keller, from, uh, who's died now, but he was a pastor in New York, said this. Jesus is the true and better Adam, who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and to go out into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking up his son to the mountain, sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us. Because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus, the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, 
only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and used his new power to save them. It goes on, we're only in Genesis there. But you see the point. There's shapes and all over the place to point us to Jesus. Here he is. He's patterned in the Old Testament. Not only is he patterned, but sometimes he's present. Before Jesus became a man, before he's incarnate, he is present in the Old Testament. We see him appear. So Jude 5 tells us that he was the one who led the Israelites out of Egypt. Isaiah's vision of glory in Isaiah 6 in John's Gospel tells us it's Jesus that he saw. Who is walking with Adam in the cool of the day? It's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And we see him turn up. Who is the I am that Abraham encountered? Jesus tells us it, it was him. So all the way through, we're going to look out and see Jesus. He didn't just turn up in Bethlehem. No, no, no. He's the promised one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's patterned, he's present, but also he's prophesied. He's prophesied about. Somebody's worked out that there's over 300 of the prophecies about Jesus are fulfilled in his life accounts in the Gospels. So you read through the Gospels and you will see over 300 times where Jesus was fulfilling something that was promised in the Old Testament. Now we read some of the famous prophecies at Christmas, don't we? And we, we kind of might remember them. And to us, a child is born. We might hear about the virgin um, giving birth to a son. Or the Bethlehem promise in Micah. Or the serpent crusher we read in Genesis 3. These are often read at Christmas time. And they're reminding us that the promised one has come. Reminding us Jesus is part of a bigger picture and so we're waiting for the promised one all the way through we're waiting for the one to restore the the relationship with God that we need and so when the fullness of time had come you see we're waiting and waiting as you come to the end of the old testament there's 400 years where there's silence there's no messages from God there's no prophets there's no angels and then you get to Luke chapter 1 uh, and the angels start appearing all over the place, don't they? You can't get enough of angels in the start of the Gospels because they're announcing he's coming. The time has come. The promised one has come. Is your nativity scene, your picture, is it too small? I don't mean literally should it be a big one in the middle of your lounge, <laughs> but is it? Have you just focused on that this Christmas or do we need to take a step back and see this is part of something bigger, which is why the baby born is so amazing. And so wonderful. He is the promised one. And when we look at that verse, it says, when the fullness of time had come. Doesn't it remind us as well that this is real history? It really did happen. A, 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 a man called Jesus walked on this earth. It's not fairy tale. We can mix it all up in all the stories that are going on at this time of year. And Jesus just becomes one of these characters which ends up being like a fairy tale. But let's remember this is an historic event. Jesus really came at a real time. And we can really believe it. So when did Jesus come? He came at the, at the fullness of time, when the time was ready, at just the right time. All the promises were fulfilled and he was ready uh, then to show us who he really was. So that's the first thing. When did he come? Secondly then, why did he come? Why did he come? Well, let's look at the rest of verse four. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's two things that we're told here that Jesus comes to do. The first is he comes to bring us freedom. He comes to bring us freedom. Verse 5 says, he came to redeem those who are under the law. 
The word redeem isn't a word we use that much these days, is it? We might redeem a, a voucher or something, you know, come to get it. But the meaning of the word here is that it's to do with the slave, the slave market. So if somebody was a slave, the price could be paid to set them free from being slaves. And Jesus came to set us free. He came to pay a price so that we could be free. But the question is, free from what? There's a couple of things that are mentioned here. In verse 3, we're told that um, all of us were in, are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Elementary principles of the world. What's Paul talking about? Well, most of the church in Galatia, a lot of them weren't um, necessarily Jews. So although the law of Moses does come into this in a moment, he's talking about something bigger than that. There's this inbuilt kind of um, slavery that we're all, something that we're all enslaved to. What is it? We're all trying to live up to some standard. We're all aware that we're falling short of some standard, whether we can put a name on that or not. And so all of us, all humans are striving, are fighting, are battling to do well enough. We, we really want somebody to tell us, it's okay, you're accepted, you've done enough. And we're all slaves to it, we're all striving for it. Wherever you turn, wherever you look, people are longing to prove themselves, to show how good they are. I wonder if that's you today. You're striving, you're longing to prove yourself. Maybe to your family, maybe to your friends, maybe to your colleagues. You want to know, am I good enough? You want somebody to say, well done. You're aware that you can't even keep your own standards. You're aware that you let yourself down and you know you let others down. But you keep trying. Maybe next year will be the year. I'll get myself together. Maybe next year I'll say everything sorted. Maybe this um, time, this change of circumstance, this difference in my life, maybe that's going to sort it all out. But the reality is, we're striving and it's tiring and we're slaves to it. And here's some amazing news. Jesus comes to set us free from that. He comes to set us free. He's come to redeem us, to pay the price to set us free. He's made a way for each one of us to hear the words, you're accepted. You're good enough. How? How does he do that? Well, look what verse 5 tells us. He tells us that he's come to redeem those who were born under the law. Those who are under the law, uh, he's come to redeem us. Now, what's that talking about? It's talking about the law of God. This was revealed to the Jews, and everybody is born into God's world, and so we're under an obligation to keep God's law. God knows what's best for us. He knows how life works best. And how does Jesus sum up this law? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. That's the, the law of God summed up. And the problem is when we think of that, well, we've all failed, haven't we? None of us have loved God as we should have. We put other things in front of him all the time. He becomes like fourth, fifth, sixth place in our life. And do we love our neighbours and those around us as ourselves? Well, we fail to, don't we? We end up looking in and loving ourselves more than others. So this striving, this battle for approval, deep in us, we know that we fall short, but God's law kind of spells it out for us. That's the standard. Love God, love others. And the problem is we've failed. We're weary. We try and we can't do it. 
And Jesus comes and he's born and he's come to set us free. How? Well, he's born, we're told, under the law. That is, he comes, he's under the same obligation as every other human to love God with his, all his heart, soul, mind and strength and to love his neighbour. And here's the great news, Jesus did it perfectly. We're told, do you see what it says? He was, God sent forth his son, born of woman, that is, he's a human, under the obligation of the law. Uh, he was born under the law to redeem those under the law. So he was born and he lived the perfect life that we could never live. He did it perfectly. And so he can say to God the Father, I have fulfilled the law, I've done it. I've kept it perfectly. And he does that wonderfully, the Bible says, in our place. He says, I want to keep it so that you can benefit from my obedience. I'm doing it in your place. And so he says, Father, I've kept your law perfectly. I've kept all the obligations that humans are supposed to, but have failed. And now I want to give my credit, my obedience to those who trust in me. So the law no longer needs to weigh us down. When we trust in Jesus, we are accepted, we are forgiven. And God the Father looks on those in Christ, trusting in Jesus and says, they've obeyed the law perfectly. So today... The God of heaven, if you're trusting in Jesus, says, stop striving. The law is fulfilled in Christ. He's done it all. He's kept it all. And you are now accepted in him. Stop striving. Stop being weary with trying to prove yourself to God. He knows you can't do it, which is why Jesus came. And he's come to forgive us. One person illustrated it like this. Imagine you're at a school and you've got a big exam coming up. And your teacher tells you the books to read tells you um, best exam techniques, test, text, uh, tells you all these kind of things uh, and kind of feeds back at the end of every test, you know, to try and help you to get the best you can. And then the day of the exam comes and you have to do it. You have to sit in that hall. You have to get the paper out and the pen out. I know some sending cold shivers down some people's spine thinking back to exams in school. But imagine that was the situation and you're in the middle of the exam and you are struggling. You know, the sweat is pouring. You just can't seem to focus. It is looking a right mess. And you look up from the paper and the teacher sees you in this struggle. The teacher sees you struggling. And so she comes over and she says, move over. She looks at your mess of the paper, rips it up, throws it away, gets a new paper, writes your name on the top and starts to do the test. She set the test. She set the exam. And she then does it perfectly. And when you get the results back, you get the results of her work rather than your own. Now, there's lots of flaws in that illustration, but you see the picture. Jesus came and he says, I'll do it for you. What you need to do is trust in me and you need to stop striving to try and get uh, this level of obedience. You'll fail at and accept that I've done it for you. So today, if you're trusting in Jesus, the good news of Jesus coming is this. You can rest in his perfect obedience read the gospels he that is him living the life you couldn't that is him sitting a test and passing it with flying colors as he loves the lord his god with all his heart soul mind and strength as he loves his neighbors as he loves the unlovely that we struggle to love there he is and he does that in our place he's come to set us free from the law rest this morning but secondly, it doesn't end there. There's another F for us to remember. He comes to make us family. 
He comes to set us free and he comes to make us family. Why did he come, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, Paul is using a legal term there. Term there. It's receiving sonship. That's what he's telling us. In the first century, apparently in the Greco-Roman world, a relatively common situation was this. There'd be a, a wealthy man who didn't have any offspring. Nobody to pass their inheritance on to. So what would they do? Well, they would take one of their slaves and they would adopt them and that slave would then become part of the family and they would wonderfully um, inherit everything and, and be the legal inheritors of all that the wealthy person had. They would inherit the riches of the father because the father had now adopted the slave into the family. Now, wonderfully here, the promise is for us, if we trust in Jesus, we can have the benefits of, of his works. Now, why doesn't it say here, it could say, couldn't it, you think, well, why doesn't it say, have the, why can't we be adopted as sons and daughters? Yeah, it would be, be kind of more inclusive for us all here, wouldn't it? But actually, there's good news in the fact that it doesn't. What do I mean? Well, back in the first century, daughters didn't get any inheritance. They would have nothing. Just the, it would just be the son. And so here, Paul is saying, whether you're male or female, you can have the same rights as the son. We're all equal in Christ. So actually, even though it sounds a bit sexist, actually it's the total opposite. It is saying it is equality for us all because we are all adopted as sons. In Christ, you have all the same rights. So here we're told we were slaves, we were rejected, but Jesus came in order to set us free and to make it possible for us to be adopted as sons to the Lord God. You're welcomed into the family, accepted and loved, and you have the same rights as the Lord Jesus. Now, the good thing about, you might think this is good or bad, I don't know, but the good thing about family is you're always family. Even if somebody walks away, they're always part of the family, aren't they? You can't get out of that. Something you can't change. So when you're in Christ, when you're trusting in him, you are safe. You are safe. Is there any chance of a Christian being rejected by God? Well, here's the great news. Remember when you put your trust in Jesus, when you become a Christian, you are in Christ and you are as secure in him as the relationship is between the Father and the Son. The eternal relationship, the unbreakable relationship. God would have to stop being God for you to be rejected. Do you see how safe you are and secure you are? You're in Christ. So everything that's true for him is now true for you if you're trusting in him this morning. If you trust in Jesus, he has come to achieve something amazing for us. He's come to live that life we could never live. And he came so that we could be adopted into the family. Now, this is where we can't separate Christmas from Easter again. You know, we can never separate those two things. How did he do that? How did he make it possible for us to be welcomed in? Well, when you look at Jesus through his life, you see, when you see him praying, there's this intimacy with his father. He's, he's speaking to him. There's a, there's a joy. There's a dependency there. He calls him father and he prays to him. But when you look at him on the cross, something changes, isn't it? Instead of crying out, Father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he say that? Why does he change? Instead of calling him Father, does he call him my God? Because he was taking our place. 
He was taking the, the circumstance, the situation we deserved, which is to be kind of outcasts of the family, so that we could take his place and be welcomed in. On the cross, there was a substitution. Jesus took our place so that we could take his. And that means that we can experience and we can know uh, the joy of the welcome of God the Father, the light of his joy, that we can know his nearness. And then on the cross, Jesus experienced the opposite, the darkness, the rejection, and the coldness. That is something that Jesus has done for us. We're going to think about the difference this makes in a moment. But can you see the good news here? When did Jesus come? He came at the right time, because it was all promised, it was all set up, and he walked in at the right time. Why did he come? He came to set you free from the striving. He came to welcome us into the family. Now let's look to finish at the last thing. What difference does this make? What difference does this make in our lives? Well, look at verses six and seven to see this. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, than an heir through God. So what difference does it make? Well, notice here that there's two people that are sent. We get Jesus sent in verse four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. But in verse six, we're told, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts. So there's two sendings here. And the, why is the Holy Spirit sent? He is sent so that we can experience the reality of verses four and five. So until verses six and seven, it's all legal. You are set free from the, from the law. You are adopted into the family, kind of legal, kind of on paper as it were, black and white, there it is, it's done. But the spirit is sent so that the Christian can experience the love and the nearness of God. And what difference does that make? One of the things is this, it helps us as we pray. Look at what we can call God. You are sons, we're told in verse six, and God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we can call out to God and call him Abba. Now there's no English equivalent of that word. Um, some people have suggested daddy, but it's a word you also would have called your dad at an older age as well. Yeah, so it's daddy might be a bit too childlike or papa might be similar in different cultures but in our culture I don't think we've got a similar but it's, it's, a, it's an intimate word to call God it's something that um, is special and we have that kind of access to God so the question for us is how do we relate to God when you speak to him how are you using that how are you talking to him are you talking to him wondering if he's going to accept you are you talking to him thinking, I don't know if he really cares, I, I'm bothering him, he's probably too busy to deal with me, with all of my mess, and so we don't really approach him, we keep our distance, and that's it. But here we're told, no, the Spirit of Christ has been sent into our life to, to help us to feel that we're part of the family and that we're free. For us to know that deep down. So God the Father loves to hear you call out to him. Because he is your father in heaven. You're in Christ. You're an adopted child. So call out to him. Talk to him. He loves to hear you. I heard this um, story, a true story that happened a few years ago now to a man called Russell Moore, who was an American uh, Christian leader. And he went, he went to adopt uh, two Russian children. 
And so he went over to the orphanages in Russia. And this is what he tells about his time there. The creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down the hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, even though that was terrible. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort or for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. They went to see the two boys they were going to adopt, uh, but there were no cries when they went in to see them. No squeals, no groans, just silence. But on the last day of their trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we dreaded saying goodbye. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some, some primal level, he knew that he had a father and a mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament. Little Maxim's scream changed everything. He went from being an orphan to being a son. How does God the Father respond when you call out to him in the same way a father responds to a son? He loves to hear you cry. He doesn't remain unmoved. He doesn't remain distant, but he draws close. When was the last time you really cried out to God? When you really told him what you were finding hard? When you really poured out your life before him? When you really spoke to him? So often we don't think he wants to hear us. So often we don't believe that he wants to bother. Even though we might not say it like that, our prayer life reflects that us what we truly feel. We have access to the God of heaven, to the throne room of heaven, as a child, call out to him. The spirit of God has been given to us to, to help us to pray. Are you accessing him? Are you relying on him? Are you plugged in, as it were, to him? So often we try and live our life on our own, stubbornly thinking that we can do it. This is the week it's going to change. This is the year it's going to change. But God wants us to lean on him, to plug into him, as it were, to depend on him. Let's bring our attitudes that we're struggling with, the temptations we're struggling with, the doubts or the questions that we have, let's bring it to our Abba Father and know that he loves to hear you. He loves to hear his children's cry. Are you depending on him? Are you turning to him? Are you praying to him? What difference does Jesus come into this world make? It means that we have access to God. We can pray to him. But also, we have an assurance with God. See, adoption means that we are safe that we are gods and we are safe. The Spirit's role is to assure you of that love, to make you know and feel it. I wonder, when was the last time you felt the Spirit assuring you of the love of the Father? Perhaps you can think of a time in your life where that love was real, a time where in a moment you knew that you were loved by God, that you were accepted by him, 
and that you are his. That's what the Spirit does. That's his job, to show us that we are um, God's. Maybe you've felt it this morning. Maybe you feel it, you know it as you sing, or as you encounter Christ in his word. You just think, this is true, this is real. You love me and you've got me. He loves you and he's got you. Will you hear that this morning with the Spirit's power? And it means, look what it means. You are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It means that we are heirs, joint heirs with Jesus. What is Jesus going to get? He's going to get glory and greatness. And so what are we going to experience? We're going to experience the glory and greatness of Jesus for eternity. And you think, well, what's so good about glory? You know, there are moments in this life where we get tastes of glory, where just things seem to fall into place, where everything's okay. Yeah, maybe that is a glorious view or a vista, an amazing sunset. Maybe it's a moment in a relationship of nearness. Maybe it's a sacrifice that somebody does for you. Just you see glory, you experience glory and greatness. Well, forever, we will experience the glory and the greatness of God. Those are signposts to us to point us to his glory. And we, at one time, will know the glory and the inheritance that we will get. See, Jesus came, and it's a big thing. He came to set us free. He came to welcome us into the family. He came at just the right time, when the fullness of time would come. Let's go back to the jigsaw puzzle. We've got the nativity scene there. We've got the picture. Can you see that there's a lot more? The, the edges are still not there. That we need to take a step back and see, wow, there is so much more to this. I pray that today, this Christmas, that we would experience this freedom and this welcome in the family. And maybe this morning you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I don't know, am I, am I free? Am I part of the family? What do I have to do? Well, the good news is Jesus has done it all. Turn to him today, ask him, say, Jesus, I want this to be true for me. I'm going to be yours. And when you're in Christ, all this becomes true for you. So we can stop striving and we can welcome and accept his forgiveness and is welcome into the family. The promised Jesus is the one who can make all this possible. Don't turn him away today, but enjoy and be embraced by him and what he's done for you. Let's pray before we sing our last uh, song together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory of Christmas that reminds us of the reason Jesus came, which is so much bigger than we so often think. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly came that you willingly experience that rejection on the cross for us to experience your welcome. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come and make these truths real in our lives. Help us this week to know moments of nearness of you, crying out, Abba, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.